0: Matthew chapter 6 Jesus says when you pray don't be as the hypocrites are for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they be seen by men truly I tell you they already have their reward but you when you pray enter into your closet and when you have shut your door pray to your father in secret and your father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. Folks, this is why I kind of get nervous leading people in prayer or being led in prayer. I've never been comfortable with that. Now, I understand that that sometimes it's necessary, but when I'm leading people in prayer, be honest with you, I would rather just ask everybody to bow their heads and lead everyone in a moment of silence so that we can all pray. Nobody hears what any of us is saying except God himself, and that way we don't have to worry about how the prayer sounds to the people around us. When it's one or two people who are close, that's different because it's more intimate. And we're coming together before God as a group. But when it's, say, no, a Bible study class where there's 20 or more people, something like that, I don't think we can really pray effectively because we're more aware of the other 19 people listening than we're aware of God's listening. We can't help it. Even on a subconscious level, we wind up performing in front of these people instead of communicating with the king of the universe but Jesus here is getting into those who are very comfortable with those other 19 people listening to them because it's them they're trying to impress anyway I'm sure we've all at one time or another had to endure the arrogance of someone else's pious prayer who were actually not praying to God but continuing to talk to you you know (laughs) continuing to preach a sermon to you but in the disguised format of a prayer you know Lord let him see that this that and the other you know But prayer shouldn't be a public forum. That's what Jesus is getting into here because it is a direct conversation between you and God. Think about that fact. I mean, we actually have the opportunity at any moment in time to have the undivided attention of the creator of the universe. He's the highest king there is, folks. He's currently the king of heaven, the king of the universe, and will one day be the king of the earth. And when you pray, you have His undivided attention. I mean, that's that's incredible. Why would you want to share that with anybody else? Why would you want to use God's undivided attention to get the attention of people around you? That's what Jesus is saying here. When you pray, don't be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Truly I tell you, they already have their reward. But when you pray... Enter into your closet, and when you shut your door, pray to your Father in secret, and your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. Folks, we could take that single statement and turn it into a whole roundtable discussion. Christian cliches and magic phrases that we originally attach to our prayers with purpose, but in time it becomes a repetitious habit. Like attaching the phrase, in Jesus' name, to everything. Like that's the magic phrase that activates the prayer. It's You know, it's good to pray in Jesus' name. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible endorses that. It encourages that. But I'm just talking about the overuse of that phrase. Because I've found myself in the past using it like the phrase, Simon Says, Remember when we were kids and played the Simon Says? If you didn't say Simon Says, then the request after that didn't count. In Jesus' name. So first, out of reverence and out of sincerity, but in time, by habit, and then later almost out of superstition. If we don't say it, the prayer doesn't count. But if we do say it, then everything you pray for will come true. Some people choose to use the King James English when they pray. And there's nothing wrong with that. But personally, I've never understood that. I guess they do it because they associate the King James English with spiritual matters because the oldest English Bible is written in the King James. But there's nothing spiritual about the King James English. When that Bible was translated, everybody talked like that. Even street prostitutes uses the words thee, thou and thy. So I don't get it. Vain repetitions. Also interlacing every part of your prayer with suck up phrases. Dearest Lord, Father, creator of heaven and earth and redeemer of all mankind, who is higher than the highest heavens and looks down upon the meek and who died on the cross to pay for the sins of all, who flooded the earth but saved one family, who redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, who sent his son to the cross and who shall return and establish his kingdom and who shall smite the Antichrist and return in a robe dipped in blood. Hey, is this going anywhere? God already knows he did all that. You know, I mean, it's one thing to respect and revere and honor, but there's a difference between respecting and sucking up. And God knows when you're sucking up. That's why Jesus sort of mocks them and says, they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. But don't use vain repetitions as they do. Something else that makes me nervous, and that's recited poetry as a prayer on a regular basis. I grew up in a family that recited a poetic prayer before every single meal. And it was the same prayer, the same poem. We held hands, we bowed our heads, and recited that same prayer three times a day, every day, for all the years that I grew up. Now, on the surface, you would think, wow, this is great, a family that holds hands and prays before every meal. Most people don't do that. But as I got older, I started to recognize that it's actually more disrespectful than respectful. I mean, it was a good ten-second prayer that because of repetition, three times a day, every day, for decades, it became empty, vain, and meaningless. It became something to get out of the way so the food wouldn't get cold. Well, if you want to thank the Lord and honor and respect him, bow your head and silently pray to your father. If you don't want to be repetitious, just say, thank you, Lord. The whole point of all this, folks, is to keep it real. That's all. Don't do it to impress other people. And don't think you can impress God. God's not impressed by empty, vain repetitions or cliches. It's not an incantation to summon up something. It's a conversation between you and the father. Keep it real. Jesus says, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions, as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. Now, folks, I'm fixing to open up a huge can of worms here and get into something that might make some of you mad. But don't get mad. Just take what I'm fixing to say and think about it and then do your own homework. Don't ever accept anything I say here on Founding Word without doing your own homework and your own praying. Don't be closed-minded, though, either. You know, give me a chance. Hear me out before you judge it. But if you find that the Bible says something different from what I'm fixing to say here, then you listen to the Bible and completely disregard what I say. But be open-minded enough to hear me out first on the one hand. But on the other hand, don't accept it without doing your own homework. That should be your standing policy on everything you hear, not only from me, but everybody. But, folks, the more I study this verse where Jesus says, When you pray... Don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. The more I study this, the more I believe that what Jesus says here condemns what most people would call their prayer language. Others call it a spirit language. Others call it speaking in tongues. And we're going to spend a whole lot of time on the subject of speaking in tongues later on when we get to the book of Acts and Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So there's no point in spending too much time with that here. But I do want to touch on it a little bit because I really do believe that what most people today call speaking in tongues is not what the Bible calls speaking in tongues. And it's actually a violation of what Jesus just told you right here. He said, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions, as in empty or meaningless repetitions. As the heathen do. For they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. What are we often told about speaking in tongues? That it's a prayer language. That it's a spirit language used in prayer that only God understands. See, if you pray in your own language, Satan can hear it. And you don't want that. So what you do is you use your quote-unquote spirit prayer language language. So that only God hears it. And for some reason that language is supposed to make a bigger impression on God than any other language. That's what we're told. But there's no biblical basis for that. And I mean none. Zilch. Zero. Nada. Not a single bit of biblical evidence to support any of that. It is a total fabrication of a handful of Bible verses here and there that have no relationship to each other. And they've been twisted and turned and merged into each other to create a doctrine that is 100% man-made and not biblically endorsed. Now, there is such a thing as speaking in tongues. But what many today call speaking in tongues has got nothing to do with what the Bible calls speaking in tongues. The word tongues in the Old English was just another way of saying languages. Speaking in languages. More than one language. Now, you can actually learn how to speak other languages by taking courses and so forth. But what the Bible is talking about is a little different. Most of what we know about speaking in tongues comes from an incident that occurred in Acts chapter 2, where brand new Christians were given the Holy Spirit, and the moment they got it, they suddenly began to speak in languages that were not their own. And then later on, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul calls this ability a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a spiritual gift that God chooses to give to some, not all, but to some Christians. And that gift is given to communicate to others around you who don't understand your home language. You speak English. Somebody else around you speaks Spanish. You don't know Spanish, but God does. And the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues means while you're speaking in English, suddenly out of nowhere you start speaking in Spanish. That's what that spiritual gift is. That's what it does. And that's how it works. Using a Star Trek idiom, you might call it God's universal translator. And the purpose is to be able to communicate something clearly to others around you who don't understand your home language. That's what speaking in tongues is all about. Now what people have done with that today is combine that biblical truth, that biblical reality, with two other passages of Scripture that have nothing to do with speaking in tongues. The first one is Romans chapter 8, verse 26. And it says, The Spirit also helps us in our infirmities, for we don't know what we should pray for as we ought to. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. What that's saying is that we don't always know what to pray. We want to pray, but don't know what to say. But the Holy Spirit takes whatever prayer we offer and intercedes for us to the Father. And then it says, with groanings, which cannot be uttered. They take the groanings part and think it means it's talking about a spiritual prayer language, where you make all kinds of weird noises and speak in some weird gibberish talk. They fail to notice what this verse says about those groanings. It says they cannot be uttered. So whatever this language is, you can't utter it. You can't make it. I don't care what you do with your mouth or what kind of noise you make. This is saying it's a groaning that cannot be uttered. And the other part of this is that it says it's the Spirit who's the one who's making the intercession. Not you. He's the one who's doing the groaning. Not us. People take this verse and say it's talking about praying in the Spirit. Well, it is talking about praying in the Spirit. When you're praying, you're praying in whatever way you know how, but according to this verse, we clearly don't know what to say. But we're saved, so the Spirit finishes the job, and that takes place outside our physical world. So it is praying in the Spirit, but that doesn't mean you make a bunch of weird noise gibberish and then call it a prayer language, praying in the Spirit. There's other verses that talk about walking in the Spirit. Does that mean there's a super-secret spirit walk where you twist your legs all around you in some weird unknown schizophrenic pattern? Well, of course that's not what it means. The other verse that people use to twist what speaking in tongues is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12, 13, and 14. It says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, because they, those spiritual truths, are spiritually discerned. Let's look at this in the New American Standard translation. It says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So from that... People think it's talking about speaking in tongues. It's gibberish and sounds foolish to the non-spiritual man, but the one with the Holy Spirit, that gibberish, that weird-sounding gobbledygook language actually makes sense. They think you're supposed to speak in a language that nobody understands except Christians. What they fail to notice is that at no place in the Scriptures do you see Paul or anybody else writing in any language other than earth-based languages. When you take this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and just say, We speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, while the natural man doesn't receive them because they're foolishness to him. Well, when you say it like that, then yeah, it sounds like it's talking about some weird unknown spirit language that's not of this earth. But when you place it back in its context, it's saying the wisdom and the doctrine and the truths and the teachings of God, they are what's not accepted by those without the Holy Spirit, not the words. Because that wisdom, that doctrine, those truths, and those teachings, they are spiritually learned. Some time ago, we hosted a show where we did a study on the armor of God listed in Ephesians chapter 6. But we kind of did something weird. We didn't do it on Founding Word. We did it on JPA Live, the secular show. It blew people away. A lot of regular listeners were thinking, here's a guy who makes perfect sense talking about movies and politics and does great satirical parodies, great sense of humor, but now he's completely lost his mind. This is a foolish conversation and a foolish broadcast that he's having. Why do they think that, folks? 1 Corinthians tells us it's because the natural, non-spiritual man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Because the things of God are spiritually appraised. But the Christian listeners who tuned in, they stuck it out. And they came back for more because they've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that they may know the things freely given to them by God, which things I spoke of in that broadcast, apparently, judging from the reactions of listeners who weren't saved, I spoke of in words not taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit. Because only the listeners who had the Holy Spirit gained something out of that broadcast. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12-14 to 14 in action right there, folks. But it's got nothing to do with the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. I don't have that spiritual gift, and at no time did I speak in any language other than English, because that's all I know is English. And I certainly never spoke verbally in some super-secret, weird, strange-sounding, unknown Romulan-Klingon spirit language. When this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about spiritual language, it means just that. It's spiritual. It's not physical. It does not manifest itself in the physical world. You can't see it and you can't hear it. I'm speaking English. All my listeners spoke and understood English. But only those who had the Holy Spirit really understood what we were talking about. Because the communication was taking place on a spiritual frequency. That's got nothing to do with how it sounds. This whole business of a spirit language that sounds like a warped 8-track tape being played backwards is not biblical. Speaking in tongues is biblical, but what people call their spirit prayer language, it's not biblical. And after reading what Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm actually starting to believe that not only is it not biblical, but might even be demonic. Because right here, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus says, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. Who are the heathen? He's not just talking about people who aren't saved, who live in a secular society or lifestyle. He's talking about those who worship false gods. He says they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. He says don't use vain repetitions. Vain as in empty, meaningless, without substance or reality. Don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do. It's fascinating, folks. If you were to go into one of these so-called spirit-filled churches and... You know, just stand back there and watch and listen. And then watch a National Geographic documentary about some pagan voodoo tribe in Africa. They all look exactly the same. And then once you make that connection, then suddenly First Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 has a whole new feel to it. And it will give you goosebumps. Where it says, The Holy Spirit distinctly and expressly declares that in latter times some will turn away from the faith, giving attention to deluding and seducing spirits and doctrines that demons teach. I used to think that verse was just talking about Christians and churches embracing doctrine that the Bible opposed, such as gay marriage and stuff like that. And that certainly fits. But when I made the connection between witchcraft, voodoo, and what's going on in some of these spirit-filled churches where people are running around, contorting their bodies, speaking in some weird, unearthly language, passing out, losing consciousness, some of them vomiting on themselves. Folks, that's not the spirit of God in there. That's the spirit of something that is seducing and deluding people scary stuff but let's get back to the sermon on the mount jesus says when you pray do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do for they think they'll be heard for their much speaking therefore don't be like them for your father knows what things you have need of before you ask him therefore after this manner pray and i'm going to read this first in the king james because it's familiar to us in the king james and it's beautiful in the king james but then we'll go back and look at it more closely Jesus says, therefore, after this manner, pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now before we take this apart and look at it closely, I want to first acknowledge one of the biggest errors, and that's the error of calling this the Lord's Prayer. Tradition has called this the Lord's Prayer, but it's not. It's Jesus telling us. We're his disciples. He's telling us how to pray. It's our prayer, not his. If you want to look at an example of a prayer that Jesus prayed, look at John 17, and we'll get into that later on. It's Jesus' private prayer to the Father the night before he was arrested. That is the Lord's prayer. But this here is the Lord telling us how to pray. Jesus said, pray in this manner. In other words, here's a template. It's amazing people publicly recite this word for word, over and over again, year after year. But didn't Jesus just say two verses before this to pray in secret and to not be repetitive? He didn't say, pray this. He said, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. In other words, start off by addressing God with honor and respect. Whatever title that fits your mode of communication, but also shows respect. Whether it's dear Lord, dear God, dear Father, whatever. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before you pray for anything else, it's all about what he wants. You know, we often like to tag at the end of our prayers. Your will be done. But Jesus is saying, no, put that here first. And something else, your kingdom come. That's a prayer for the second coming, folks. Unfortunately, people tend to cringe whenever a Christian hopes for the return of Jesus Christ and the setting up of his kingdom on the earth. Even Christians cringe. And they'll say, well, if the kingdom comes now, then people who aren't saved yet are going to miss out. Man, does that sound like a noble sacrifice of self for the benefit of the lost. Push back the coming of the kingdom so more people will be saved. Folks, don't you think God's already taking that into consideration? He's pushed it back for 2,000 years, and if he has to, he'll push it back 2,000 more. The Bible says it's the Father's will that none should perish, right? I don't want to pray for his return because the world isn't ready. Well, is it because the world isn't ready, or is it because you aren't ready? Jesus told you, before you pray for anything else, you pray for the coming of his kingdom to be on the earth as it is in heaven. The Father rules heaven. There's no supernatural war. There's no deception. Sin is absent. Death is absent. Suffering is absent. Pain is absent. Confusion is absent. Why would anybody not want that here on the earth? People tend to think this, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven business, is just a nice way of saying, Lord, I want what you want. Your will be done in this situation or that situation. No. It says your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. That means total absolute righteousness and perfection without sin, without the curse, without Satan's interference. You can't have his will on the earth as it is in heaven without his kingdom extending to the earth. So first, address God with honor and respect. Then pray for the coming of his kingdom. Then pray for his will, not yours, but his. Then it says, give us this day our daily bread, our daily needs, food, whatever. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, folks, this doesn't mean that you're earning God's forgiveness by forgiving others. This means you're forgiving others because you know you've been forgiven for all of your debts. God, in his love, put his judgment against you on his son instead of you. So you should put your judgment against others in God's lap. That's what this means. It's his problem, not yours. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, folks, that's an unfortunate error in linguistics crossover. It's actually allow us not, or to put it another way, do not allow us into temptation. So what does that mean, allow us? Do not allow us into temptation. Well, God doesn't lead people into temptation ever. Satan does that. But Satan has to get God's permission first. So while Satan is doing the leading, it's God himself who first gives it either a red light or a green light. And sometimes he will allow Satan to run you through some trial or some satanic horrific scenario for reasons that only the Father knows. When you read the book of Job, we know of what's going on between God and Satan as Job's life is falling apart. Everything that happened, Satan did it. It wasn't Job's fault. God wasn't causing it. It was all Satan's doing. But each thing that happened couldn't happen until it first got a green light from the Father. Now, when this happens, Satan has his own reasons, but the Father has his. We don't always know what those reasons are. Other places in Scripture give us a few insights. Sometimes the trial is nothing more than to just get your attention. Sometimes it's to prepare us for an even bigger trial that's coming down the pike that's vital to our spiritual growth. Another reason, and this is a reason that I haven't realized until recently, And this brings me more comfort than any other reason for going through all these trials and tribulations, because it doesn't require me to figure out what's going on. Believe it or not, the trial or temptation can be nothing more than an opportunity to receive an incredible, unimaginable, awesome reward in heaven. It's extra credit. It's a bonus. Last time we read from Romans where it says we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if... We suffer with him so that we may be glorified together with him. Glorified together. That means we won't get the reward for that suffering here and now, but when Jesus comes to establish the kingdom. Why? Because when we endure some horrific satanic scenario, and we come out of it still loving the Lord, still being faithful, Satan has to get God's permission first to begin with, to put you through the scenario. God says, okay. Satan then drags you through the hell, and you choose to swallow the suck painfully hold on and then move forward still being faithful still loving the Lord and then when it's over with the father says to Satan I told you we don't get to be a part of those conversations but that's what you want to happen after Satan has run you through something that he just knew would destroy you you want to prove him wrong so that when it's all over with he looks up to the father as the father tells him I told you what we don't want is after the trial is over, Satan looking up to the Father to tell him, I told you. So whenever God allows Satan to put us through something horrific, it's always for a good reason, be it to get our attention, or to train us for something bigger that's coming on, or just to get a bonus when we get to heaven. All of those reasons are reasons why God allows Satan to drag us through the muck. But unfortunately, even though Satan has to get God's permission, Satan knows of a loophole. He knows of a loophole to get around that. There is one exception where God is forced against his will to allow Satan to drag us through something when God himself has no good reason for allowing him to do it. If it was up to him, he'd give Satan a red light and say, no, I will not allow you to do that. When does that happen? And how? Unfortunately, folks, we are actually capable of inviting Satan into our lives, ourselves, in so many ways. I mean, he intrudes into our lives enough as it is without us inviting him. Each time he intrudes, it's by permission of the Father. But when the Father gives that permission, you want it to be because Satan requested the Father and the Father approved because he had ulterior motives behind it. You don't want the whole thing to be your idea. You don't want the Father being forced to allow Satan to enter into your world because you invited him in and God had to allow it to respect your free will. So that's what this part of the prayer is talking about. You want to limit those satanic intrusions. Jesus says, pray for that. Allow us not into temptation. And deliver us from the evil one. Now that part's inclusive of both your invitations as well as his. Whether God allowed it for good reasons or you invited it for bad reasons, either way, you want to be delivered from those intrusions. Don't allow us into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep going, folks. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, once again, folks, this isn't saying that you earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. And if you don't earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others, then you certainly don't forfeit his forgiveness by not forgiving others. But if you're a follower of Christ, and remember, the follower of Christ is who this sermon is addressed to. If you are a follower of Christ, you've already been forgiven of all your trespasses. So you don't have any ground to hold grudges. Forgiveness isn't about letting people run all over you. It's not about condoning what people have done against you. It's about leaving the consequences of their actions in God's hands. When somebody wrongs you, you need to take the attitude that since you're one of God's children, then when somebody wrongs you, they also wrong God. So you let God handle it. And don't get caught up keeping a tally of what wrongs have been done against you. God's doing that for you. You don't have to do that. And that's what this is about. If you truly are a follower of Christ, then holding grudges against people is something that shouldn't be a part of your nature. Being a forgiving person doesn't make you a follower of Christ, but being a follower of Christ will make you a forgiving person. That's what this is saying. Let's continue. Jesus says, moreover, when you fast, don't be as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be fasting before men. Truly, I tell you, they've already received their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that you don't appear to be fasting before men, but to your Father only, which is in secret. And your Father, which sees in secret, shall reward you openly. Now, folks, I don't want to get into fasting too much here because it's another one of those topics that you could spend a whole hour on. The word fast means to stop. It means to cease. In a 24-hour period, you usually get hungry in five-hour intervals. But when you sleep at night, you actually do without food for much longer because you're asleep. That's why the first meal of the day is called break fast. It's because you're breaking the fast that took place while you were asleep. But as far as fasting as a spiritual exercise is concerned, obviously Jesus endorses it right here. But you won't find too many instructions, if any, in the Bible on how to fast, other than Jesus saying, here, don't do it to impress people between you and God, and not to be done to impress people. Now, people have written all kinds of books on the subject of fasting, and like I said, I'm nervous talking about this because I haven't found too much instruction in the Bible as to how to do it. But I do know one thing about it. The purpose is to be focused, completely focused on the Lord. It's not to impress the Lord. Hey, God, look at what I'm giving up to get your attention. That's ridiculous. God always gives us His attention. The point of the fast is to remove anything that might be getting in the way of your attention, not God's. So you can fast all kinds of things to remove anything that might get in the way of your attention. And only you know what those distractions are. You can starve yourself to death and still be distracted if you're watching TV, playing video games, surfing the net, and talking on the phone. I've only attempted a food fast once, and I didn't really get anywhere with it. I I think I made it to two and a half days. It wasn't until I unplugged the cable box, unplugged the video games, turned off the TV and took the phone off the hook that God finally had my full undivided attention. Fasting is about giving God your full attention. Not impressing God and certainly not impressing your peers. And don't tell God, Okay, God, you've got my undivided attention for two days. Well, if you have that attitude, then he won't tell you anything. It's about submitting yourself before the king of the universe. You're not his king. He's your king. And if you really value his instruction, his guidance, and his wisdom enough to remove all the distractions, then you're not going to put a time limit on it. Now, he wouldn't purposely force you to miss future engagements just as a battle of the wills. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, how important is his instruction? You know, how important is his guidance? Is it important enough... To give him seven hours or just one hour? Is it important enough to give him a whole week or just a weekend? It's not about the food. It's about your attention. Now, there are healthy benefits and physical changes that take place when you deprive your body of food for a time. And like I said before, there's all kinds of books written by professional doctors that get into all of that and other books written by Christians with medical backgrounds and such. So you can get into all of that if you want, but since the Bible never clearly instructs us on what to fast or how to fast, I feel like I have a little leeway here to suggest to you that fasting is about forcefully removing from your presence all distractions, all of them, for an uncertain amount of time. Now, you can't do that your whole life, otherwise you'd serve no purpose, but we read several places where Jesus gets away from everything and everybody, even his disciples, to just be alone with the Father and pray. He does that on a regular basis. Sometimes he gets away for a whole night. He fasts from sleeping and he stays up all night long praying to the Father. And you know what's really fascinating to me, folks, is how the urgency of all the distractions that we have, they're really nothing more than an illusion. We actually believe that we don't have the time. But once you start getting into the habit of setting aside some time for some serious alone time with the Father and His Word, you'll discover how much of those distractions are really nothing more than illusions. You'll start enjoying that time spent alone with the Father and His Word. So you'll start seeing that it's possible to set aside some more time because you really want to. You enjoy it. And then suddenly you'll start to see how many of those distractions were actually self-imposed. You know, daily reading of the Bible is a devotion in and of itself. But serious study of the Bible? Serious book-by-book study? Who has time for that? And yet, we'll buy ten whole seasons of some TV show on DVD and start with episode one, season one, and watch every one of them. And then when we're through with that, we'll watch the -the behind-the-scenes footage. We'll listen to the audio commentary. We'll know everything there is to know about that TV show before we're finished. And when we're through, we'll start on another one. We'll get a whole new TV show. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that the idea that we don't have the time is an illusion. We have plenty of time. We just choose to use it for something else.